from a young age. I couldn't protect my mom. I could. I, I felt like I had to be in positions that as a child I really wasn't supposed to, right? Right. And I know I talk a lot. Usually when people talk about their story, they talk about the drugs. I talk about the childhood a lot because that's where it all went wrong. That's mm-hmm. for me where everything happened. All my wounds are from that point. So it's kind mm-hmm. of like, to me, mm-hmm. addressing and healing and recovery is about addressing mm-hmm. those wounds. Addressing mm-hmm. and healing from those is more important than stopping using. If... An individual wants to stay, stop using. Hi, I'm Barb Nangle. I want to welcome you to my podcast, Fragmented to Whole Life Lessons from 12-Step Recovery, where I help people heal their emotional, psychological, and spiritual wounds and make deep, lasting changes in their lives. I'm the founder and CEO of Higher Power Coaching and Consulting, LLC, where I coach people on how to develop healthy boundaries. On this podcast, I share my experience, strength, and hope from recovery. I don't support or endorse any particular 12-step recovery fellowship, and I don't claim to speak for any particular 12-step fellowship. I also don't believe that 12-step recovery is the only way to recover. You might need additional help. My hope is that you'll find my words concretely helpful in improving your life, whether you're in recovery or not. This is episode 170 with guest Nick. I am more than just an addict. I'm really excited today to have Nick, who I met from Never Alone Recovery, on today to share his experience, strength, and hope of recovery. So he's going to talk about his life lessons from 12-step recovery, and then towards the end, he'll talk more about Never Alone Recovery, why he started it, what he offers, and how to connect with him. So welcome, Nick. I'm so glad that you're here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on. So tell us your story. It's one of those things where I feel like I spent a lot of time in like the rooms. I spent a lot of time in, in therapy, you know, kind of like figuring out all the details to the story. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is, you know, a lot of the story itself is just shame and learning how to, to heal from the shame and deal mm-hmm. with the shame and, and unpack it and absolutely yeah see what's real and what's borrowed and what was given to me and what I believe actually to be mine. Like kind of redefining so many, so many of the things that I thought was the truth. I mean, you spend so much of your life, I did at least, spend so much of my, of my life believing the lie. Most of my life was kind of like one liar after another, after another, after another, like who I am and all my experiences. It's no different than like when I was getting high and the lie was I was uh, a junkie and I was just a drug addict and I was uh, a dope fiend and all those things that I would uh, refer to myself as. To find out, you know, after getting into recovery and doing some work that like I may have had things that I have done that were like bad. Like I did a lot of things that caused a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and I did Mm -hmm. do dope and I did Mm -hmm. do a lot of shit. But as far as actually being so low of a human being as I thought I was to find out I'm not, never was, you know, a lot of it's all shame. I think that like shame is the the thing that at, at the forefront from as young as I can remember that was given to me, the the experiences, the trauma, the sexual abuse that I went through, the alcoholic mother, the, the abandonment issues, the mommy issues, the, mm-hmm. all of the issues that I've had to kind of come forward with. And it was like, drugs were kind of like my thing that allowed me the opportunity to like, I mean, for, what I believe is like, if I didn't do drugs for a long time, I probably would have killed myself. Right, right, right. So they yeah. saved your life for a while. And for then, a while. Then they fucked know. it up. Yeah. Yeah. So they were kind of like the proverbial black knight that I thought was like the white knight. And that sounds mm-hmm. bad. I 
but whatever. You know what I mean? Like yeah, the, yeah. the figure speech being that like what I thought was my saving grace was the same exact thing that was killing me. You know, mm-hmm. it was the thing that that really brought me to my knees. So it's like I, I got high because the only thing that I could deal that I felt like to deal with my shame was the same exact thing that in the end created the most amount of shame that I yeah. had, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like when I stopped using, cause I think it's like when you're using and it's like when you're out there and you're caught and it's like, there's such a level of like numbness that's going on. There's such a level of like, uh, not feeling, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of it is like very muffled and it's like, right. kind of like drug use is like that buffer between like my mm-hmm. perception of reality and reality. And, and uh, hanging on to that, that buffer that as much as I humanly could, you know, come hell or high mm-hmm. water, whether mm-hmm. it was going in and out of jail or, or in and out of treatment centers or overdose. I mean, whatever it was that I was going through, which I went through all those things, I still always, you know, it's like kind of like when I OD'd and I remember like waking up being mad. And because like I got high for one reason and really one reason, there was a lot of things that like are probably attached to that reason, but like I got high because I wanted to feel peace. I didn't even, it's not even that I wanted to feel nothing. I think nothing was what I thought I wanted because I didn't know what peace was. Right. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's just like the fact that like what I really wanted was peace. Like it's the same thing I wanted when I was a kid and like I was scared and like my mom was doing all her chaos or like she was like, I mean, my mom did a lot of crazy shit, you know, like driving us through like the hood, chasing after her crackhead boyfriends when we were kids and getting us almost shot in in neighborhood uh you know this is something that came up in therapy like yesterday actually we were talking Mm -hmm. about that was you know driving through so we're driving through inglewood so inglewood's like one of the worst places in chicago not a good neighborhood they were like my siblings were all in there we're all white as shit okay Mm -hmm. so uh very and uh, my mom was chasing after her boyfriend who's smoking crack and we're in the car she ends up hitting this little sweet little girl on, on her bike now the girl was fine like, she wasn't, like, hurt in the sense mm-hmm. that, like, she had to go to the hospital or, like, 911 mm-hmm. had to come. Like, she popped up. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, it's terrible she got hit, but it was, like, like almost, like, literally, like, tapped, you know? Yeah. She jumped up. She was fine. And then, all of a sudden, everyone in the neighborhood comes out, and they're, like, they're threatening to, like, shoot us. Like, it was crazy. And it was, like, this was, like, something I think I, like, buried down in my in my subconscious. Mm-hmm. Uh and it started to come out more recently where it was like, they were like, shoot this white bitch. And it was like, it was crazy. And it was mm-hmm. scary. And it was another experience that like, I know like that my therapist wants me to continue to do more EMDR. There's a lot of like mm-hmm. trauma stuff. So there's a lot of stuff that in recovery, I've been able to kind of like uncover where it's like, I went through a lot of things, you know? And like, did I have the worst childhood in the world? No. Did I have the best God? No, you know, but it's like the, the lie I told myself, I think I spent most of my life just trying to prove I wasn't weak or I wasn't powerless because in my life, this is the real truth is I felt so powerless from a young age. I couldn't protect my mom. I could, I, I felt like I had to be in positions that as a child, I really wasn't supposed to. Right. Right. And I know I talk a lot. Usually when people talk about their story, they talk about the drugs. I talk about the childhood a lot because that's where it all went wrong. That's for me where everything happened. All my wounds are from that point. So it's kind mm-hmm. of like to me, mm-hmm. addressing and healing and recovery is about addressing mm-hmm. those wounds. Addressing mm-hmm. and healing from those is more important than stopping using if an individual wants to stay stopped using. And so it's like finding myself in these positions, just scared. I was always afraid, you know, and it was like when I did drugs, it allowed me the illusion 
to feel like I was less afraid. It allowed me to feel like I was in control temporarily. It allowed me Mm -hmm. to feel like I had some sense of power and I wasn't so powerless. You know, that's the almost paradox of recovery to, to feel powerless, to admit I was powerless over addiction was so hard yet. I felt so powerless my entire life and that was so easy, you know? But it's no different. It's that denial. It's that lack of acceptance. It's that ability to want to bend the truth to to fit the narrative. There's so many stories in my life that like other people have told and they sounded like it made me less weak. When in reality, a lot of the stories over time that have been told, the truth was like I was always fucking scared. Mm. Always. Mm -hmm. I was always scared. I wanted I, I, I really wanted to be anything other than myself, but I really didn't want to be anything other than myself. That's just what I thought I wanted. I just was so terrified of finding out who I actually was. It was easier to kind of adapt as I got older, all these like almost like chameleon, like personalities, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's kind of like where I'm at is who I am. Right. Mm -hmm, And and, like underneath that is just like, just all of these like wounds and stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, so it's like, you take drug addiction thing like drug addiction and and most people can look at the surface and they can see the substance or or any addiction really you can see like the actual physical act and like to me it's like that is such a small piece to the puzzle you know and then you add things like relapse or the level of recidivism that does happen a lot of times with relapse and it does happen and so it just adds more to me at least what i think of like a little bit to the stigma of like substance use, like any form of addiction that is based in like, oh, the physical part. And I think that we, that's the part where I think it gets wrong a lot is like when people focus so much on like the substance or the actual like habit mm-hmm. um, itself that you're removing away, you're moving away from where we need to be. You know, mm-hmm. it's uh, like, I've never been a big fan of like the whole, like uh, the, talking about oh we got this epidemic or that epidemic i mean we had a crack epidemic in the 80s i mean there's always an epidemic of going on of some sort mm-hmm. it's just a matter of that uh the real issue isn't the drugs i mean there's a poisoning mm-hmm. of the drug market happening right now that's an issue i mean as far as like fentanyl just being in everything and, and mm-hmm. not being outright like i guess the difference is in the 80s crack was crack or cocaine was cocaine mm-hmm. nowadays it's not that that part is where it's an issue but mm-hmm. Past that, I still like, let's go heroin epidemic. Wasn't a fan. Wasn't a fan of that because I was like, man, heroin isn't the problem. The problem is untreated mental health. The mm-hmm. problem is lack of resources. The mm-hmm. problem is people not being able to get the help they need. Mm-hmm. Problem, that, those are the problems. The problem right. is people not getting connected with the resources they need. And mm-hmm. even more so, the fact that people don't know that these resources exist. Like People yeah. don't know that, that help is a lot more accessible. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I talk to people that are just like, they're like, oh, you're not going to do this. Or you're not going to do that because they're used to being told like bullshit, you know, people right, told right, bullshit. Right. I want to add to what you just said. I think stigma underlies all this shit because there is such stigma against addiction as if it's some kind of moral failing mm-hmm. that we don't talk about it publicly. I remember hearing something recently, somebody talking about how like if you find out that somebody's teenage kid has cancer, you're like on those people and sending them love and all that shit. But when you find out their kid has a substance abuse problem, you stop talking to them and people feel shame and all that shit. And so that, that to me is the breeding ground for the lack of support, the lack of mental health treatment, the lack of recognition of trauma and all the other shit that you said. 
So that's one reason why I really appreciate what you're doing in terms of like getting the word out there and letting people know no, like, yeah, for sure. they're never alone. No, yeah, for sure. And I think that's like a big thing that like a lot of times families will come into our, into the support group. Can't tell you how many times they get on the phone and like a lot of people just feel like there's like nobody that gets it. And a lot of times it's like, I mean, really what I, I this is how I perceive it is most people, it's like a very cut and dry system. The cut and dry system is based in like money. A lot of it's based in money. And so it's kind of like when people actually like have someone who just sits and talks to them and treats them like a human being, it is something that is not there as, as much as it should be, you know? And I mean, to go off of that, I, I know at the end we were going to talk about, but it's like, that's kind of a lot of what we, that's kind of a lot of what we did was we wanted to fill the gaps, like helping people mm-hmm. taking away from just the whole insurance, no insurance, like just like making it less about that. I mean, that's mm-hmm. still like, an, it's a factor, mm-hmm. but it's not the only factor. And guess what? Everyone can get treated whether they have insurance, Medicaid or, or private insurance. It's just mm-hmm. a matter of that, like actually giving people the time. But what I know is like most important, none of those things matter nearly as much as like when you just talk to someone like a human being and you mm-hmm. just say like, Hey, you're more than just that. You know, yeah. it's kind of like the whole yeah. more than just an addict thing where it's kind of like right. so much of the stuff gets boiled down. And that's why like things like 12 step programs are so fantastic is because it's free, it costs nothing. Mm-hmm. The thing with that is it's, it's usually, a, it's not for everybody. It's one of those things that I think that like the biggest ball game changer in this all is, is when people happen to know that like uh, you get a, a family member, will talk to me on the phone or they'll come to the meeting and they just like, go cry or they'll do whatever. Like, they'll just be like, Oh man, I'm not, I'm not the only one that's going through. This right. Yeah. And, that's, and that's, and so it's like family members. It's even more than like addicts and stuff because like, actually we have like treatment or people struggle with like SUD or whatever term mm-hmm. I'm supposed to use. Uh, they, the people that, you know, we, we have so many resources. There's so many meetings. There's so many, um, treatments, there's treatment centers, like family mm-hmm. members don't have treatment centers. And I'm right. a huge believer in like the family disease. I think that there's such a Agreed. level. Agreed. Yeah. Um, the, that, I mean, I've seen it, I've seen it so much firsthand where it, it's like, uh, I can't tell you how many different sides of the spectrum I've seen on the family dynamics where it's like, sometimes there's family members, they'll do anything. They want to do anything. They're willing to set and implement healthy boundaries. Like they're mm-hmm. willing to take suggestions or willing mm-hmm. to do just about anything that they think that might help them. Even, even like the most important thing, which is accepting that like, they might not know it. They might not know mm-hmm. what to do. And they're willing to listen to people that might have an idea. Right. And there's the other side of the spectrum where I've had people talk their kids out of getting help and their loved ones out of getting help, uh, getting treatment, you know, because uh, self-centeredness. I mean, because mm-hmm. it's one of those things where it's control where it's like, mm-hmm. I've had, I'll never forget it. This kid is like 20 something. I mean, he wasn't like a kid kid, but he was like 20 something. He's young. He, t- he talked to me for like a year and after about a year of telling me like he, he would say all the time he would say he was he wasn't he was like a very typical like kind of like thing that like a lot of people that struggle with addiction go through it's like i'm not suicidal i just don't want to keep living this way i'm tired mm-hmm. but i also don't i'm scared as hell to stop using so i'm gonna keep doing this mm-hmm. and uh and that's where he was and finally he finally said he wanted to get help he was finally willing to go after talking to me Five minutes later, he texts me. He goes, mom says, it's not the time. I can't go to treatment right now. It's not the time. And I get on the phone with the mom the next day. It's been like an hour and a half on the phone. I'm talking to her. And everything she said, I had a solution for. I gave her like an answer for everything. And it was like right. honest. There was like a real solution. It was actually what was yeah. going to happen. And she, I think she might have believed it. But she just, I mean, at the end of the day, 
she had her idea of what was supposed to happen. And since if she didn't come up with the idea, oh, no. then it was no, it was mm. not something on the table. Problem with that was she didn't have a real idea. She, right. Right. Yeah. It was like, let him keep drinking himself to death. You know? Right. Like, yeah. It sounds like some serious denial take there, her to mom. a meeting every now and then. Yeah. Doing something. It's like, come yeah. on. You know? It's like, so, that's not for every, you know? Like, mm-hmm. could he go to meetings after? But yeah, the kid was drinking every day. Right? I need a medical detox at least to start. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And so the point of the matter is, is like, there's like that end of the spectrum of families and mm-hmm. then there's the other end of the spectrum of families. And then there's like some people in the middle, but, it, the, but most of the time, most people feel uh, alone. Most of the time, family members feel like they don't have a, an outlet. And like in our area and like Chicagoland region, there's probably like maybe eight family meetings at most. At like wow in the chicago area that's not many yeah no there's not yeah. one. i mean there's the there's yeah one on monday there's the one on wednesday on zoom through us there's mm-hmm. probably a handful uh you know of the a, the a's and the and the n and the na versions and all that mm-hmm. stuff uh the allen oaks and the naranons i mean not the mm-hmm. other A's. and but yeah there's a lot and that's mm-hmm. across the board. If you look up legalized places, there's not a lot of resources now. Like Chicago mm-hmm. region for like twelve step meetings, there's mm-hmm. I think there's like two hundred. You know, yeah, tons, huge. Well, that's one of the beauties of Zoom is that people don't need to have a meeting in their physical area. And um, just because you're talking about family programs now, I also want to give a plug for Codependence Anonymous is another place that's really good for families. It's coda.org, and then. Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families. It's adultchildren.org. Those are great um, meetings for family members because alcoholism is a family disease. Substance abuse is a family disease. Even if you've never used, uh, it still affects you because, you know, families are create group dynamics. We're a product of our environment and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's a toughie. The reason I talk about so much is like, I look at it like as the whole where it's kind of like the, I take a lot of like what I went through, right? So it's kind of like I had two ends of the spectrum. I had like a lot of people setting like a bunch of boundaries with me. And then I had like other people not setting like any boundaries with me and, mm-hmm. and finding somewhere in the middle, like what actually worked. And and, mm-hmm. and what I've noticed so much is like a lot of the times, like those are just examples of like, sometimes like people that are struggling with addiction are able to like have that moment of clarity. And then sometimes they're shut down by families. And on the mm-hmm. reverse side, how many times families call and they go, Oh, what do we do? Our, our my husband, my wife, whatever mm-hmm. doesn't want to stop using. Like, what do I do? Like intervention, like, Oh, what do I do? And it's like, you know, the, the com the commonality of the theme being that like, if you just treat people struggling but you don't treat the family over here, mm-hmm. then they're going, it's going to lead to a level of recidivism. I can't tell mm-hmm. you how many times where if you have someone going to treatment and then they come mm-hmm. back to this toxic environment or mm-hmm. if their mm-hmm. environment's not super toxic, but they never want to get clean, but I'm still a little bit toxic in the sense that mm-hmm. like people sometimes like, it's not like they don't love them, but like they don't have good, they don't have healthy boundaries set with them. Mm-hmm. So it's like right. yeah. their, their idea of loving them, Mm-hmm. Isn't that it's not that they're trying to harm them like the mom right. says? Eh, no treatment, not for you. Right. It's it's yeah. like in the sense that like sure, I'll do anything. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of. Yeah. You can take a walk all over the house and break everything and steal everything, and you just always have. Yep, make sure you got money. Mm-hmm. Make sure you. Got, you know what I mean? Like so, it's kind of mm-hmm. like it, it adds mm-hmm. to like those boundaries are so important. So it's yeah. kind of like why. Mm-hmm. What I believe is you can't just help someone with treatment from their addiction. Mm-hmm. You have to help the family because then you have Agreed. a whole collective, right? Because it's like 
It's kind of like cancer, for instance. Like if you have cancerous cells and you remove them and you put them back into a pile of cancerous cells, what's going to happen? Right. Those healthy cells are going to have mm. cancer again. Same right. exact thing. Yeah. You know? yeah. Treat yeah. one person with the disease. Mm. Well, families also have it too, because like my dad mm. always says it best. He goes, you know, my name is Warren. I'm an addict, but not in the traditional sense. He says, I'm an addict and my addiction sitting right there. And he points at me. And it's mm. like, so that is the, that is the level of truth that is necessary. Agreed. Yeah. That if you treat it in the sense that like, Hey, they're going to come home and there's probably not too many boundaries that if they're not getting mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so it's kind of like for me, like I go to a halfway house and I call my mom and I'd be lying. And I'd be like, mom, I'm in this halfway house in Maywood. And it's just a shady enough area that like, it's believable when I say mm-hmm. it. So I was like, mom, I'm, I'm, I remember sitting on the payphone they had there and it was like on the wall. And it was not even by a window. Mm-hmm. And I go, Mom, I'm watching a heroin deal right out front. Right yeah. now. So right now, better come get me unless you want me to do heroin. Do you want me to do heroin? It, okay, I mean, Okay. So you were totally <laughs> leveraging that fear that she full, had. Full shit. Yeah. So, full so shit. what you're talking about is precisely why I've become a boundaries coach. Because people want the people around them to change and they don't understand that they have a role in that. And that like learning how to set boundaries is, you know, is paramount to that. I think they so, understand so, they have a role. I think it's hard to accept that you might have a healthy role. That's good point. Good point. So you mentioned um, both your mom and your dad. So when you like got into treatment and like got clean and have been on your and I don't know how you feel about that word clean. I know that some people don't really like the connotation that dirty is the other end of that. But in any case, when you have had your particular um, stint of sobriety that you're in right now, was there something different about the way that your family behaved this time in contrast to the previous times when you were relapsing? Like, what do you think was the thing know, that dad, really did my it? Dad, my dad and my family had, that side of my family had pretty healthy boundaries set for like seven years. Of me. Oh, and, okay. Yeah. And then my mom, I mean, the main difference is one thing was like, I remember, I'll tell you this, I'll, we'll go right to that part, Whoop, going back in time. And I remember I had got, so what happened was I stayed clean for like six and a half months, but I didn't change. I didn't, I didn't do any work. I made some meetings. I, I went see. to treatment. I got out, made some meetings, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I hung out with people that were like partying. And like, I was still like one of those. And this is the thing adds to my whole, like the, with the whole epidemic thing where it's like heroin's mm-hmm. problem and stuff like that. So that's what I thought. I got out and went, I went to rehab. I got out and it was like the, you know, I think it was, it was, I don't know. It was one of the many times I went to inpatient, but mm-hmm. And I get out and I'm making meetings and I stay, I stop using. But the whole time, like my mentality, even though I wasn't using anything, like I was like, heroin's the problem. That was what I believed, right? I ended up, this guy I went to rehab with, he didn't stay clean. He was smoking, he was drinking. He was, uh, I think that's most he was doing, is like drinking and smoking weed and stuff like that. But so, like, I'd hang out with him a lot, and I'd go to meetings, and I'd hear a little bit of the message, and then I'd go hang out with this guy, and he'd bring me he some, like, girls and, like, whatever and stuff, and, like, that was cool. And so I I was hanging out with him a bunch, and there was, like, a level of, like, self-righteousness of, like, <laughs> I don't use anything. like <laughs> And, like, but the problem was, is, like, 
it was fake. It wasn't real. Like I was, I was putting myself in these environments where uh, people around me were using. And like, Mm -hmm. I I hadn't changed in the sense that like, I was so fixated on this one specific substance Mm -hmm. that even though I wasn't doing any of them, the mentality behind it was like still that, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Cause I would hang out with people, they'd be drinking. I remember going to uh, like, uh, like house parties and stuff like that and doing like shots of monster. And I'm like, you know what I mean? Like with these people, these people are fucking hammered drunk and I'm doing right. shots of monster monster. <laughs> and, uh, um, but like, I remember the whole, like the whole time I just felt like this was the best I'd ever felt. Mm-hmm. I remember feeling that way. Like I've never felt so powerful. I never felt so, so good about myself. And like, I had some of my personality back. Cause like when I did drugs, I got real quiet, which is like, okay. shocking. it's like shocking, but, um, you know, like I was very quiet and like when I did drugs, it was made me like very, like I was very much more introverted. And so when I, with talking, I still did like crazy, stupid shit, like clapping and putting robes on and walking up and down my mom's driveway. <laughs> just, I'd be doing like the Hollywoods and, and, uh, I'd be banging on her, on her wood panel walls at 3 AM. And then she'd say, what are you doing? And I'd be yelling up, I'm going to be a rapper. And I'd just be banging on him and, uh, definitely never pursued that. But that's what I said, <laughs> you know? I'd be snapping. I, I don't know. I had all these like, weird, like little like things I did. You know, you're really high and just do all these things. <laughs> and um, but I remember we hanging out with this guy, and eventually, what ended up happening was like the changing. Like this is what changed everything. So I remember we were riding bikes. I didn't know where. I think we were going to his girlfriend's house or something like that. And I had been clean for like six months or whatever. And I tell the dude I'm with, and I'm like, hey, man, like, I kind of want to drink. I was like, and I don't ever drink her, but, like, I was like, whatever, I kind of want to drink. And he laughs. He's like, oh, you're always making jokes. Because I would. I would make jokes all the time about relapsing. Like, all the time. I just joke about all the time. So we keep riding. He, like, he didn't really say anything. He just kind of was like, oh, you always say that. And, like, that was it. Like, it's just, like, way different than, like, you get the response from someone that's in, like, recovery. Right. And uh, later... You know, I said it again. We kept riding, da 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 da. Said it again. And he's like, oh, you're funny. Said all da da da. We ended up pulling up to a liquor store. And I look at him. I go, well, guess you made the decision. You helped make the decision easy. And I went in there, bought liquor, drank. Remember, I drank and I almost threw up. I remember I went to the bathroom at his girlfriend's house after drinking a sip. And I remember I felt sick. I remember feeling like it was shame. That's what I didn't know. I felt wow. like I felt ashamed of myself. I felt guilt. Because I had tasted a better way of life. I didn't really investigate it too much. I really didn't really get involved into a new way to live. But I had tasted what it was like to not use for like the longest since I started. And just that alone was a change. The reason it didn't stick was because I didn't change, but that still was a change. And I remember feeling it. And so what did I do? I drowned that shame and that guilt with more shame and guilt, you know, and proverbial. But then I get out and I, I think I had like two or three, I didn't get like drunk or nothing like that. I just drank mm-hmm. a few beers or whatever, but then it was off to the races. It was like every day for like the next few days. With alcohol? Eh, for like three days. And then I was, okay. like, eh. I was like, not for me. And then the one day I remember he had like morphine and like he was at, we were working together. We worked at uh, famous days. We worked in the back of the house. I remember he was like, oh, I got some morphine or whatever. Either way, I did it. 
that next day. I mean, it was bad. I went from like that, then we were like huffing dust and like doing all this stuff, mm-hmm. like within 24. And like he hadn't been doing like none of this shit. And as soon as I right. got high, it was like, boom, son. Like we're, right. we're doing heroin now, like very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Within 20, yeah. like within a week of him and me yeah. drinking together, it's like, boom. I'm like, dude, mm-hmm. gotta call your guy. Yeah. We're gonna do some dope because, like, that's where it always went with me, you know. And it was just like, uh, and we did that. And uh, I remember, like, we were downtown. We drove. We took the L's to the city, and then he wanted to get Xanax, and I was like, whatever, that's cool. And we got that. And then I remember, well, somehow we ended up in Inglewood. I remember, like, some guy on the L because he was randomly like this dude I was with. Uh, I uh, coincidentally, his name was Nick. Also, and so he was like, "Oh man, he's like, I want to smoke crack." And like this, like crack guru comes out, like like a fucking fairy, almost like crack fairy pops oh, out, and he goes, "I can get you some." And like, yeah. And uh, so we ended up uh, doing that. We went Inglewood, and uh, scary as hell because I remember like mm-hmm. almost it was like two a.m. and the guys with like uh, this some random guy he's just doing stuff you don't do especially if you're white at 2 a.m but like probably in general mm-hmm. at 2 a.m i would mm-hmm. assume where he's like slowing down some guys like asking him for money and he's like oh yeah i'll be, I'll be out and i was like no and the guy we were with like i'm gonna beat your boy's ass and i was like mm-hmm. all right man like let's just go do drugs and like go home you know and uh so that so we did that. And then the next morning I got arrested uh, by the Metro police and I caught another case and I was on probation already. And I, they charged me I had like a few bags of dope on me, maybe like half a jab or something. And so I go to jail and I remember, I remember it happened when I was in jail, right? The change happened when I was there. And I remember accepting that for the first time I was going to go to prison. Cause like I had been able to like avoid prison. I, was, I went in and out of jail a lot. But I was able to avoid prison up to this time. And this is okay. the time where I was like, my attorney was like, yeah, you're fucked. Like, you're going to prison and we'll shoot for like a year. And I was like, all right, cool. Maybe get on like six months or whatever. So I accepted that. I was like, that's cool. I'm going to do a year. And But then after like 30 days or whatever, 32 days, they I go there and I forget what exact hearing it was for, what court date. But essentially, they're supposed to have my labs. And the attorney comes out. He's like, all right, we're going to motion that. Uh, he comes back and goes, man, God's always got you. And I was like, what's the, what's the deal? And he's like, no lab results. They have to let oh, you go. man. And so I ended up getting my probation reinstated. And I was under a 90-day re-indictment re- period, which was the mm-hmm. perfect excuse to get one less use in, of course. It was the first time I went to jail and didn't get high. I actually didn't use in jail. I always used in jail. Every time I went mm-hmm. to jail, I always used something. Like, I wasn't mm-hmm. having the $50 bags of dope habits mm-hmm. i was having like whatever weird pills we can get like snorting nose and shit you know mm-hmm. or like a little hooch i remember getting out and uh i remember going to this uh, it was a retreat for the program the anonymous program that i worked mm-hmm. at the retreat i remember i just kept going on and on to everybody about this 90 day reindict as though i'm going to jail anyways like basically mm-hmm. i was like looking for someone to like co-sign and be like you know what right yeah you might as well get high like, I'm right. going to go to prison, so just get out yeah. and Nobody did that. So I just kept doing it. I kept saying it over and over and over and over again. So what ended up happening was I went to this retreat, and I had this guy, he used to be my sponsor, say, he goes, Nick, he said, you got 90 days to figure it out. And I said, what do you mean? He said, he said you got 90 days. And he said, in, in 90 days, you're either going to decide that this is what you want to do, or you're going to keep getting on said, it's up to you, though. He said, you got 90 days. And I was like, okay. 
what he basically was saying is like, which is like very common where he was just like, Hey, give this a shot for 90 days. Probably won't mm-hmm. want to get high. Don't mm-hmm. give this a shot for 90 days. You will. get high. As soon as they, uh, cause I didn't drive my license was revoked. I'm very stereotypical destroyed my life drug, uh, drug addiction story. And mm-hmm. in the sense of revoked license and all that good stuff, couldn't drive. So mm-hmm. I was with these guys and fairly long haired, dread, dread haired, having, uh, guys, big, huge fucking beards. And, um, but yeah, they, um, they end up bringing me home. I get high for, I maybe once. I mean, I got mm-hmm. one time, maybe. I think it was like mm-hmm. one day. I think it was like the next day I got high, went to the West side, got robbed and, uh, got sold a hundred dollars worth of just cut basically like dormants. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. no, no dope. And my best thinking in that moment was like, fuck, I think I got a bank account with like 15 bucks or 25 bucks. And I think maybe we can do a little overdraft on it. That's what my best thought was. And I tried it and then I had overdraft protection. So I only got like 25 or 30 bucks. And now I owed the guy who drove me twice as much because he drove me two places. And uh-huh. so I remember barely getting high. And I remember laying in my mom's basement, looking at the door that's not there. And she had the doors all removed in my room. I think it was, it might've been after my overdose in the basement. Where, like my, I just didn't have doors. Mm-hmm. And I remember just sitting there thinking like, wow, you should be in jail. Mm-hmm. And you're not. And you're high. And barely. Mm-hmm. I'm really mm-hmm. high. I was like barely mm-hmm. high. Mm-hmm. And you have a kid. My son was two at the time. How old is he now? He's he'll be ten. He just turned nine in January, so mm-hmm. nine. And I remember thinking you had like a hundred some bucks, and these are all things that went through my head. And I was like, you had a hundred some bucks, and you spent none of it towards that kid. You spent on dope, and spent a hundred of it for Benadryl. Dormant. Mm-hmm. You're barely high, and I said, "Wow, you piece of shit." And that's exactly mm-hmm. how I talked to myself. I said, right. Yeah. So many of us do. Yeah. I said, you know, it's like, this is what you got. You know, it's kind of like you were given another opportunity to do something different and you did the same bullshit. And I remember just that, that crippling feeling of despair and defeat, like just feeling mm-hmm. so absolutely, absolutely worthless, you know, mm-hmm. like feeling mm-hmm. so low. And I felt like, what I termed, which I don't believe now, but this is what I termed like suicidal, where I was like, I don't mm-hmm. want to live. But in reality, mm-hmm. looking back, right. what it really was, was like, I really just didn't know how to not get high. Right. I really yeah. didn't know how to stay clean. Like, I really didn't know how to live mm-hmm. uh, a better way or a new way, mm-hmm. you know? Like, a non-painful life. Yeah. Most of us don't want to die. We just want the pain to end. Right. And it was like, and I was like, remember, I remember sitting there and I had a few thoughts, right? And I was like, well, I said, my first thought was, if I get high, I want to overdose. Now I had that thought many times and I was just settled for like kneecaps to face, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, but I remember telling myself like, you know, we could steal. Like that was my first thought, steal from my mom or steal from Mm -hmm. anyone that I can kind of get my hands shit on. And then I said, I don't really want to do that, though. And that's what I remember telling myself. Like, I kind of, like, had, like, a moment of clarity where I was just like, eh, what other options we got? Mm-hmm. And I went to the next one and the next one. Then I said, oh, or or I could 
call that guy, dreadhead guy who's got the big beard, told me he had nine days. I can call him and tell him, hey, you know what? I'm done. That's exactly what I did. So I called him the next day. That night, I, did, I went to bed like I passed out. I was just, mm-hmm. I just, I just remember saying, I don't want to steal. We'll put it off till tomorrow. That's why I told him. I've never done this. It's things mm-hmm. I've never done. I never, right. ever, 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 ever thought about like stealing or doing anything that involved me getting high on the other. That I never not done it. That was the first time in my entire gotcha. life where I just, I just chose. Like I made a decision to not use. Like I made a decision mm-hmm. to not uh, throw my life away even more and not. Continue mm-hmm. to tell myself, just like I'd done every time I used that said I didn't matter. I mm-hmm. made a decision not to do that. So what I did was uh, I ended up going to sleep. I woke up the next day, which was on June 15th of 2015, which is my clean day. Nice. And I called this dude and I said, hey, man, I said, uh, I know what it's like to do absolutely nothing and get six months. I said, let's try and actually do some fucking work and see what happens. That's exactly what I did. You know, nice. I, I said, yeah. I don't, I'm scared. I'm terrified. Of course. I said, yeah. I don't know if it's going to work. I said, but mm-hmm. I just know that like, and I said, I still want to get high. I said, well, I believed I wanted to get high. That's what I think. Right. No, no. I was like, I, yeah. I believed it was because like, like getting high was mm-hmm. like a trauma response. It was like, it was like a, a reflex almost where it was like, mm-hmm. I know right. I don't, I didn't have like the triggers. It was just like, I was breathing. Like all right, my trigger right, yeah, like a pulse right. in my right, right, a pulse yeah. and some lung unconscious, in. conscious, yeah, 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 for sure. And so, like, yeah. it was kind of like that. And I just remember, I remember telling him, I said, I don't, I don't really know what any of this is like. And that was huge because I never, I never said stuff like this. I was always like, mm-hmm. oh, I know, I don't recover, yeah, blah, blah. Like, I always was full of shit. You know, I spent like most of my life just full of shit. Mm-hmm. And uh, because the reality, just like the reason that circles back to like we were talking about like the child and stuff, it's like the reality mm-hmm. uh, was to me seemed so scary and so painful, mm-hmm. so hard to just be like, I just don't know. I can't figure out. Yeah. I don't have a lead. Yeah. My life is a disaster, but right. it could get better. So instead I would just say, oh, I choose this life or I want to do this mm-hmm. or like this is what I want to do. And like, I want to be like this kind of person. Mm-hmm. And because that, it seemed like it had more power in it. And like, to me, like, nice. like I, I felt so weak when I was younger. Like I, I wanted to not feel weak. That was like, oh yeah, like my reoccurring theme of life was like, yeah. how do I prove I'm not weak? Like, how do I prove right. to myself? I'm not the scared right. 10 year old who can't help defend or the scared yeah. eight year old who can't help defend his, right. mother, mom, his mom from the you know, 40 year old, right. 275 pound guy, right. you know what which I mean? you're like, not supposed to be doing. At right. But you don't, yeah. you know what I mean? Like that's yeah. just, you don't, yeah. you don't right. know you that. Know that. Yeah. yeah. This has been really powerful. I especially identified with the not wanting to feel weak and the just complete shame and fear and all that kind of stuff. What I'd like to do now is have you talk about like, how did you start um, Never Alone Recovery and what do you offer and then how do people follow you and get in touch with you with that? Also, first, thanks for having me on. As far as like, so Never Alone, I didn't start. I've been, so Never Alone started by my best friend, Austin. Okay. came on like a year after it started and in the last five years or so, it has exploded. I mean, nice. I kind of what I ended up doing was collectively, we took something that was like a small project that had started like in his, in his grandma's basement or something. But like either way, what we did was we've been able to do like, for instance, like in the state of Indiana, we do like full on placements. So people with like Medicaid, 
people with private insurance, people with no insurance. Like we help everybody get into treatment. Like we help every nice. single person and we do it nationwide. I think Indiana is like the state cause we're in Indiana where we've mm-hmm. been able to do like, as far as we know, as far as I know, full on Medicaid placements where it's like people have mm-hmm. Medicaid, they call me, I get them a bed and set up a treatment and a ride like transportation um, through our nonprofit for people with Medicaid, just like with the people with private insurance, which I mean, a mm-hmm. lot of everyone knows that like, oh, private insurance, of course, people help them. Right. We just took it as we wanted to help everybody. So what we mm-hmm, did was mm-hmm. build connections with the Medicaid facilities and nice. you know, no insurance long-term programs as well. Mm-hmm. So we kind of do that. We help people that need treatment, regardless of financial circumstances. I would say 98% of my life is spent helping people with like Medicaid or no insurance get transportation. Nice. The other other, uh, 2% is, you know, helping people get into a a good dual diagnosis private facility. Fantastic. As well. Uh, A big part of it is the fact that like, I I just view it all as like everyone she gets treated like they're a human being first. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's a lot of what we do. We do interventions. We do treatment placements. We do a lot of family education. We run the community addiction support group uh, mm-hmm. on Wednesday nights on Zoom. Oh, nice. How and do people connect with that? Can they go to neveralonerecovery.com? Neveralonerecovery.com. It is on the website. Neveralonerecovery.com. Okay. Scroll down. I think it says like in the middle of the page, okay. support groups. Boom. Okay. There'll be a link to that. I'll put the link to, I'll find that and I'll put the link to that, to the zoom in the chat as yeah. well as your website, not in the chat in the, you know, in the show notes. Yeah. yeah for yeah. sure. That way people can just go right to it from here. Okay, cool. Yeah. So that's a big thing. So we actually have two things. We have never Alone recovery and then we have our 501 C three nonprofit. That is keys to freedom foundation. That's where the support oh, goes nice. through. I, so basically what we did was we were always helping everyone. Like that was what mm-hmm. we did. But we were getting like transportation for people with no insurance and Medicaid coming out of our own pockets. Now that was adding mm-hmm. up. Like last yeah. week alone, I spent 750 bucks on Ubers for people with no insurance and Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because if you say you have no insurance or Medicaid, places might take you, but they damn sure don't, aren't going to help you get there. And they're right. and even more so, the, the options are so limited to begin with. So they mm-hmm. call us. And usually what we do is we help them A, get a bed, and B, we'll, we'll, sco- like we'll use scholarship funds from our, our nonprofit uh, to be able to help these people. Because Fantastic. as soon as they find out there's, you know, Medicare, no insurance, people say kind of sucks. Like they say figure yeah. it out. So what we did was we created a 501c3. So that way it's not just coming out of our pockets. Nice. Like never alone and, and just in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, and taking donations and we, okay. we are, we've been able to get donations and, and okay. be able to help people and a hundred percent of the, the monies go straight to helping. People. Awesome. No I will taken. put links for the donations too. So if yeah. people want to donate to that, what a great cause. Fantastic. Yeah, and a hundred percent goes to helping people with no, no okay. salary, nothing. And so, yeah, so we did that. We took what we were already doing with everybody. We just gave ourselves an ability to do just more of it, more nice. of Helping yeah. the people with like no insurance or Medicaid equally well, to people with insurance, yeah. be able to get to treatment, helping them with scholarships for transportation. And that's a lot of what my life is spent is, is just helping people get yeah. to treatment, get into treatment, find nice. the best treatment for them, finding mm-hmm. them out some du- dual diagnosis treatments, co-occurring mm-hmm. disorders, alcoholism treatment, mm-hmm. whatever it is, like, cause there's many different types of treatment modalities out there, helping families nice. get connected with support groups. 
So my dad's an interesting, he was married to my mom's an alcoholic and he also was a father of me. So he's been involved with family support groups for about 12 years. So nice. I always readily get him connected. He's also a board member on our nonprofit, which is oh, great. any addict full circle. My dad, right. boundaries where I didn't talk to him. So now we're like, he's a board member on our nonprofit. Nice. That's how much the uh, recovery right. aspect is good. Right. Right. So and also, I want to note to people that um, Nick drove his kids to school right before this episode. So obviously, things have changed for him drastically. Yeah. You know, like he has a driver's license. He's driving I didn't mention that in my school. story. When I was talking about the yeah. two years, I've had custody of my son for like seven years now. I've had sole custody. Wow. Him. I went That's from fantastic. like that point in my life to where I've I have full and soul cut. Well, not full and soul, just soul custody of my son. Nice. And, and now I'm like the dad. He goes, he goes to awesome. baseball games and awesome. the whole de- I'm a real so deal great. human being now. And you know what I mean? Yes. Like, well, like, you always were. Right. You just didn't believe it. Right. That's, that's what I'm saying. Like it was, it yeah. Was a, a yeah. joke at the lie yeah. that I told myself for a, yeah. for a long time. Yeah. Well, any last words before we go? The last thing I would just say is that like, if you're tuning in and, and you don't know what to do, just know that like, if you're, if you're able to like hear this message, there's a reason. And the reason mm. generally is it's needed to be heard and you need to, you need to let somebody know, like if mm. you're struggling, you don't necessarily you're struggling, just kind of like, you know, whether it's like reaching out to, to, to Barb or reaching out to mm-hmm. me, whether mm-hmm. you're dreaming, need some, some help with her coaching. If you just need a family support group, if you just want to mm-hmm. know more and you just are interested mm-hmm. in finding out and maybe in that conversation, you find out, Hey, I've got to be drinking a little too much. Yeah. Right on. Like, it's just a matter of like knowing that you can get some help. You do matter. You are. Mm-hmm. I mean, I will scream this. This is the, if recovery taught me one thing and I always yell to people, it's you matter. You yes. fucking matter. Yes. Yes. That's my message is if you're right. listening, you fucking, you fucking matter. matter. Yeah. And right. discussion, yeah. you know, whether right. you clean Agreed. or not, whether you use it or not, yes. you still fucking Agreed. matter. Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Nick. This was really fantastic. I really appreciate you and God bless you for all the amazing work that you're doing. Oh, Thanks thank you again. so much for having me on. Bye now. Bye now. Was recently reminded by a friend that when I first started recovery, I didn't feel lovable. I almost can't believe that I used to feel that way and that I kind of forgot something so profound because I truly love myself now. And I want that for everybody. If you don't love yourself, there's literally nothing that can make up for that. I created something exclusively for my private clients since many of them don't love themselves. And I've now opened up my private vault to share it with up to 10 people individually. It's called the Self Love Sprint. You'll grow to love yourself and truly feel worthy. So you can stop saying yes when you really want to say no. Stop neglecting yourself and putting everyone else first. Stop saying all kinds of nasty shit to yourself. That is not what people who love themselves and feel deserving do. You'll stop being afraid that others will think that you're selfish for taking time to care for yourself. This is also for you if you don't really know who you are because you've always been such a fucking chameleon. Go to higherpowercc.com slash love sprint Remember, I'm only offering 10 of these, so don't wait. 
you like this podcast, and I'm guessing you did or you wouldn't still be listening, then you're going to love the other things I have to offer. If you'd love pre-release podcast scripts and episodes before anyone else gets them, or if you'd love access to content from my private vault that I developed exclusively for my private clients, which is like having a work session with me without me actually being there, go to patreon.com slash higher power coaching. There are three tiers ranging from as low as $4 up to $24 a month. You'll also love my weekly newsletter, Friday Fragments, which has content very similar to the podcast. You can check it out at fridayfragments.news. That's fridayfragments.news. Please like and subscribe to my podcast on your favorite podcast outlet. I'd also love it if you'd leave a review, which you can do either in the show notes or on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find my podcast so they can get the benefits you've gotten from listening. If someone came to mind when you listened to this particular episode, please share it with them. And my favorite place to hang out on social media is Instagram. I'm at Higher Power Coaching. Please DM me there. I'd love to hear what you got from this episode. I run group and private coaching programs on building healthy boundaries. Whether you need help with boundaries in your personal, professional, or romantic life, I can help. Head on over to barbchat.net where you can hop onto my calendar for a free 30-minute Better Boundaries consultation. My ideal client is someone who is ripe for change. If that's you, I would love to work with you. My goal with all my work is to help you make lasting changes in your life like I've made deep, lasting changes in my life. Remember, it's never too late to recover. No one is beyond hope and healing is possible. Thanks for listening.